listening to the AT Tapes, a podcast from the Journal of Athletic Training. The goal of this podcast is to interview researchers and clinicians on current topics facing athletic trainers and discuss how we can utilize best practices to improve patient outcomes. My name is Lizzie Elder, and I am the host of the AT Tapes podcast. I am an associate professor and the program director of the athletic training program at the University of Alabama. My research area is on shoulder and elbow injury prevention in youth overhead athletes. You can follow me on Twitter at eelder85. Before getting started on today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that all content from JAT is open access, meaning it is free of charge to all readers thanks to funding from the National Athletic Trainers Association. Our episode today is a discussion with Dr. Brett Pexa on training load in baseball athletes and his research in this area. Welcome to the podcast, Brett. Thanks for having me, Lizzie. Brett is currently an assistant professor of athletic training at High Point University. He performs research out of the Human Biomechanics and Physiology Laboratory, where he researches athlete health, wellness, and training loads. Brett, before we get started with the interview, can you tell us a little bit about your educational background? Yeah, so I got my undergrad in athletic training at the Minnesota State University, Mankato. After that, I transitioned to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I got my master's in a post-professional program in athletic training. Uh, And then I stuck around for four more years and got my PhD in human movement science, uh, working underneath, uh, working with Joe Myers um, for a little bit, and then working with Dr. Eric Ryan uh, as well. Can you also tell us about why you became an athletic trainer? Yeah, it was, um, it was really interesting. I, you know, when I was young, it's the same old, same old, Uh, most people will give, right? I really enjoyed sports. Um, but when I was a senior in high school, actually, I took a human anatomy class and I thought it was just the coolest thing that I had ever seen in my entire life. Uh, and I thought, and I thought, you know what? I like sports. I like the human side of the um, human body side of things. I, I like caring for people. Um, you know, why not blend all these things together and, and become, you know, a healthcare professional for, for athletes and uh, for the physically active public. So, um, you know, as of that senior year, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. And I found athletic training in Minnesota state had a great program. And, you know, one thing just kind of led to another and uh, I've, I've fell in love with the profession, so to speak. So you talked a little bit about the clinical side and what got you interested in becoming an athletic trainer to begin with, and you've now transitioned more into a research role. Can you talk a little bit about how you became interested in research and specifically in this area? Yeah. Uh, so when I was in my master's at UNC, um, you know, I think they call this getting bit by the research bug. You know, um, I was uh, working with the men's wrestling or the wrestling team at UNC and the baseball team at UNC. And what I started realizing as I was working through my thesis and working with clinical, uh, working in the clinic, um, I started to realize that there's just questions that we didn't have answers to. Right. That was in the year of the Tommy John. Right. Right. When that UCL um, epidemic kind of started hitting and we started getting all these new training methods. We started seeing all these new things um, from a workload perspective and the pitch counts started coming in too. So like, it was just like this perfect storm of, wow, there's a lot of questions that we haven't answered yet. Um, so once I realized or understood the research process moving through my master's, um, you know, Joe, uh, Joe Myers asked me, would you 
mind sticking around. And it was a perfect opportunity for me to now answer some of those clinical questions that I had been asking for the past two years. Um, so it was just, it's just a perfect combination of, I tell students this all the time, right? Clinical questions, right? Lead to really, really good research studies, right? And really applicable, high impact research studies as well. So just the, my interest in research just came about from my own clinical perspective. Uh, so today we're going to ask you some questions about the research that you've done and the, and the work that you've done to try and answer some of these clinical questions and really hope we can get some information about how this the, your research can be applied into clinical settings. So recently, training load monitoring overall has been a big area of focus in sports. And I feel like this is, you know, a big all sports, not just baseball. Yeah. Um, but we really, in baseball, there's a lot of challenges in quantifying what training load is and how we really measure this. So can you maybe discuss some of those challenges in load monitoring in baseball that you've seen? Yeah, I think that uh, the biggest difference is that it's an, it's an upper extremity sport, right? And it's an upper extremity sport that we have a nice starting point and ending point from, but there's so many intensities in between to go with that as well, right? You think of swimming as like an upper extremity sport, right? You can calculate yardage really, really nicely, which is kind of that external workload piece to try to quantify it. And then, you know, you hopefully have your distances, or sorry, not your distances, your internal workload, some heart rate, some RPE to kind of go with it as well. Baseball is really difficult to quantify because we have warm-up pitches, we have long-distance throws, we have throws from the outfield that are not pitches, and then we have pitches jumping on the mound. We have bullpens throwing in there as well. So we can get these intensities, but it's an intensity that's going to be really region-specific, right? It's single-sided region-specific even. So it's not just upper extremity dominant, it's single-sided dominant. We have a non-dominant side as well. Um, and then on top of that, we just we try to quantify, you know, the, the explosion of technology has really allowed us to open these doors into a quantifying training load, right? And um, things like GPS and local positioning systems, heart rate monitors, give those really holistic measures of total body um, exertion. Uh, and with that exertion, we can then quantify and say, hey, this person is overexerting, underexerting, they're reaching different points of that as well. But with baseball, it's such a region specific item. We're creating fatigue in one particular area of the body. If we, the, a GPS harness doesn't necessarily capture that, right? A GPS harness is locating your center of mass. Well, your center of mass stays within about a four foot area on the, on the pitching mound. Uh, if you're a position player, your mass moves a little bit, right? And it's a little bit more total load, but it, it doesn't necessarily quantify the you know, level of exertion of your lower half extremely well, right? If you simply stood in one spot, jumped up and down 600 times, that's a lot of load, right? A GPS wouldn't necessarily be able to capture that. So the region specificness of everything kind of makes this a little bit more challenging. Now, of course, there are wearables kind of coming to market and on the market now that help us quantify how many times we do something, right? Turning it, turning a sensor into like a pedometer for the arm. Um, but we still need to investigate those. We got to make sure that those are telling us the things that we hope they're telling us. Um, on top of this, right, our current measures of workload are mostly pitch count, right? We try to monitor pitch counts because we know that the uh, injury epidemic is really hitting pitchers harder than anything else. So if we have, um, you know, if we use pitch counts, that's great. But, you know, pitch counts aren't everything, right? We have warm up throws. We have, like I said, throws from the infield and the outfield. If we're talking high school athletes, if somebody pitches on one team uh, during the week and then plays with a showcase team during the weekend, 
those pitch counts don't transfer from one to the other, right? It's a sport where you can do you know, those kinds of things. You're not necessarily playing with just your single one team. You play with, you know, it's very common to have like a, you know, an area specific, a community team, and then a, a really heavy showcase team, a travel team on the weekend. So, you know, the combination of the region specificity, you know, the combination of the lack of communication across teams, um, and the fact that we don't, we have a wearable that's out there, but it's not necessarily as investigated as we hope yet, right? Is it promising? Absolutely, without a doubt. But all those kind of things together are challenges that we still have to kind of work through. So I think oftentimes with advancements in technology and trendy things overall, we get focused on just measuring things to measure them at times, but there's a lot of value in measuring training load, workload, and using that information for injury prevention and recovery overall. Can you kind of go over why this is so important or could be really important um, in baseball? Yeah, we've kind of boiled, when we look at uh, extrinsic or just if we just look at risk factors for injury in baseball, we break them down kind of into intrinsic and extrinsic pieces. Uh, intrinsically, it's range of motion, it's strength, um, you know, it's coordination, things like that. Uh, and it's pretty easy for an athletic trainer to quantify those. Um, the extrinsic risk factors are actually what we're seeing uh, is what we've identified previously in the research are things like those pitch counts, right? Um, things like playing on multiple teams, things like playing different positions. Those are all extrinsic risk factors that we need to quantify. Um, and these extrinsic risk factors, basically what we do is we you can use them for injury prevention because if we can measure what we're doing, hopefully we can try to identify if we're overexerting ourselves or even underexerting ourselves too, right? When we start reaching past what our body's prepared for, the analogy I always like to use is that, you know, if I took a room full of people, everybody could get up and run 20 miles, right? Maybe not everybody, but you know, you get, I, I certainly would struggle with that, but for some people, that's a very normal part of their training, right? They can get up and they can run a longer distance for a longer period of time because they have trained and prepared to do so. People who are not trained or underprepared, right? That's, are, those are the people who are going to wake up the next day feeling terrible or start to develop shin splits or mediotibial stress syndrome, excuse me, uh, as we kind of work through these uh, as they kind of work through that run, right? It's the same thing and the same principles apply to baseball throwing. If we are not necessarily preparing ourselves for the load that's coming on, well, then we're going to start overreaching and overtraining into those areas. If we have, you know, if I have a short spring season, right, and I pick up a ball on January 1st and my first pitching bout is January 7th, that's just not enough time for us to develop fitness. If we don't develop fitness, we don't develop tissue resiliency. If we don't develop tissue resiliency, well, then our tissue starts to fail. So, if we can quantify these workloads and start to understand, um, you know, how they start to accumulate, how we develop uh, fitness over time, right, and creating that tissue resiliency, that can be used directly for injury prevention, right? And for injury prevention and recovery kind of go hand in hand, right? A, a significant lack of recovery is what ends up leading to our overuse injuries, right? If we're um, continually losing strength, right? We've demonstrated previously that baseball pitchers lose about 10% of their strength uh, on the day after pitching uh, that's not present in their non-dominant arm. So it's definitely throwing specific. Well, if all of a sudden I get back on the mound on that next day or two days later, well, I'm going to continue adding that level of fatigue or that level of negative change. Well, all of a sudden, if we look at this negative change and it continues to compound, well, then all of a sudden I'm kind of, I'm, I'm ripe for an injury to happen, right? I'm going to get to a point where um, my rotator cuff can't stabilize my humeral head. And now my humeral head is continually pushing against that glenoid labrum. So these 
Uh, monitoring the workload within the sport is the goal is to identify, right? The fitness, right? The long-term adaptations and the building of tissue resiliency, but then also to identify the short-term fatigue and understanding, Hey, how much, how much are we doing now relative to how much are we doing in the future or how much have we done been doing in the past? And are we currently increasing our load or decreasing our load? And what is that going to do to our body? So throughout the discussion so far, you've already mentioned several different methods that could be used for directly measuring or as proxies. Um, But right now, I want to ask you if you could kind of give us a summary of those things that have already been identified as methods um, to measure uh, training load in baseball, both clinically, um, and if it differs, then maybe what's used in a laboratory or research setting, kind of addressing both of those. Yeah, so... uh... In the past, clinically in the past, what I did for part of my dissertation was um, just getting guys to track their number of throws during practice, right? Um, most of the baseball players we worked with have a pretty set schedule. They understood what they were doing. They understood, you know, I'm going to have my you know, 50 or so warm-up throws, and then I'm going to have, um, you know, my 30-pitch bullpen. I know that I have, uh, if I'm pitching in a game and I throw 55 pitches, I know that I throw, you know, eight six, seven, eight beforehand uh, in a pretty set fashion. So what we ask people to do is, is just track those throws over time, right? If you have somebody that you're throwing with, keep a clicker in your pocket and just, just click with it. Especially for somebody returning to sport, this is what I would highly suggest, right? If an athletic trainer is working with somebody to, to start increasing loads, getting them back to sport, get a clicker, right? Get a clicker every time that person makes a throw, just, just hit it with one, just to understand um, the external workload. Okay. And when I talk about workload, I kind of break it down into two things and you'll see this broken down in all of workload of external workload is the physical work we do. How many pitches do you throw? How many steps do you take? How many sprints do you do? What's your distance covered over time? Um, that's a, that's a very specific external word. It's the physical work that we do. Internal workload is our response to that overall, right? It's physiological. Maybe it's a heart rate. Maybe it's, um, a change in blood lactate onset of creatine kinase. Um, it can also be perceptual. So we can use rating of perceived exertion to help track that and understand the changes that go with that as well. So when we take those two things, the ultimate goal is to measure both of them, right? Cause we want to take them both together. If I use just a simple pitch count and then uh, RPE, um, you know, we found that we can actually use that to help put together some raw assessment of load, right? And again, very raw. Um, you know, there's a, some work out there uh, that says if we use only pitch count, we miss about 42, 45% of the uh, throws in any given day, right? So we have to include all the throws that are being made. Um, the other thing that it says is that, um, you know, pitching kinetics or forces on the arm don't start kicking up until you get past, I believe it was 90 feet. So once we, you know, if you're just playing light catch at 60 feet, that's one thing. But once you start getting to 90 feet, 120 feet, 180, which is very common in return to throwing programs, those are higher intensity throws. We should be clicking those and counting them as well. Now, if you're throwing 60 feet, six inches, um, that's a particular case where you're throwing high intensity. Um, that's where you want to go. But if you're throwing light up to 60 feet or 70, 80 feet, it's it's usually not a high kinetic force yet. So it's not necessarily high work inducing. As soon as you get past 90 feet, you get to long toss, you get to throwing on the mound or high intensity throwing at those shorter distances. That's when that starts to work. So capture those two things, capture external workload, capture internal workload, external workload, count all the throws, all the throws past 90 feet or high intensity throws, and then get an RPE. Uh, if you talk to baseball players, they'll tell you all the time, Hey, the baseball felt like a feather today, man. I, I was throwing, it felt great. It felt easy. You know, your, their exertion level is low, but they're still performing very, very high. And there's other days where they pick up a ball and it feels like a shot put. 
right? And that's that perceptual piece that we want to start to get in there too, right? How difficult was training today? Um, if you look at some of the research, there's very set ways to answer these, right? Use a Borg zero to 10 uh, and use the correct scale to look at that, right? You don't want the colors on it. You want the very uh, set descriptors because that's what's been validated in the in uh, research as well. So if you're returning to throwing program, that's what I usually suggest first, right? Start tracking number of throws and then start tracking that RPE. Put those together to create a nice session rating of perceived exertion. And that'll give you, again, a nice raw assessment of what's going on, right? Are we loading more today? Are we more loading more yesterday? And then, right, start using your logic, your good clinical intuition and, and past research to start increasing these loads appropriately, right? How can you start increasing the load without uh, maybe increasing the throws? Well, we can start changing the intensity then. Well, how do, can I keep the intensity same? Well, maybe I'll increase the number of throws then. It's just kind of working with that accordingly. There's been a lot of information about the assessment of it and why we want to do this. Um, but can you give us a very high level overview without going too far in the weeds on yeah. what we now know about based on training load monitoring and how this relates to performance and injury within baseball? Yeah. So what we're starting to realize and see is that um, I kind of spoke on it before about understanding when we're training higher than normal and understanding when we're training lower than normal. Um, they use a particular a particular outcome variable called the acute to chronic workload ratio, right? And what this is just trying to do is model the idea of um, what am I currently doing versus what have I done in the past, right? How much, how much am I prepared for uh, versus how much um, am I doing currently, right? It's the same thing. If I've prepared to run five miles, but I go around and run 10 or 20, yeah, I'm going to start feeling bad. I'm going to start to get negative changes here. So what we've started to see is that when we're starting to train harder than normal, or if we're training lower than normal, we actually start to see some of these negative changes start to come up. Some changes in a global range of motion and a reach test, some changes in grip strength and things like that. Um, so those are the things that we want to look at, right? And people are really starting to increase their loads. We're thinking spring training, we're thinking pre-seasons. Um, that's when we need to be vigilant. We need to make sure that we're measuring uh, things like global measures of range of motion with a reach test or global measures of strength with the grip test and understanding if we're starting to fall into some of those negative changes, we need to intervene, right? Because those are, could be some indicators of, um, uh, of risk factors being present. So thank you for giving us an overview of that information and kind of how that can be used. So a lot of the people that will be listening to this and using this information are clinical athletic trainers. And so is there a way or, or something already developed for athletic trainers to create, uh, to count pitch counts, enter in the RP information? Like how would somebody do that? Would it be an Excel spreadsheet? Is there something already available? Like it's, are we all recreating the wheel every time or um, is there anything out there available to be used? I feel like we're recreating the real constantly, right? A good Excel sheet, a good Excel sheet is a great place to start. I, I tell, uh, you know, I do a lot of the things that I learned in my dissertation about workload. I've started to expand to so many other sports, right? Here at High Point University, I work with soccer, we work with lacrosse, work with volleyball, work with the cross country track and field teams, because these these idea or these concepts, like they kind of span past just baseball, right? We just want to understand what are we doing, how are we responding, and then how can we use that information to create positive change? And if you start with an Excel spreadsheet, awesome! Like I thumbs up, great job, right? Start with the Excel spreadsheet, right? Get your you get a column of name, you get a column of date, you get a column of throws, and you get a column of RPE. 
and track that over time. See how you're doing. If you're working with one individual, awesome. Track that for one individual. If you're working for a team, you know, then maybe break it out by day with a fun pivot table. You can Google how to do those. They're super easy and they're really, really helpful. And then you can create pivot charts off those as well. Um, one thing I, I, I'm actually doing up, coming up at the NCATA is helping people just to put some of these ideas together, right? Where it's so overwhelming. We don't know where to start. My advice, start, right? Just, just do something. Get an Excel sheet together and put it together in the most logical way possible that works for you, um, right? Because once you can start conveying this information in not just tables and numbers, but start to create just a line graph. Uh, maybe you create a bar graph to show, hey, here's where you're at last week, here's where you're at this week, and here's how we're progressing throughout the season. Excellent. That's what we want to get to. We want to start to present this data and start using this data um, so that we can actually have actionable change, right? It's it's that idea of like closing the loop, right? We Oftentimes, we have athletes train, we track data, and then we just like push it out into um, the world or use it for ourselves in any way, but let's close the loop, right? Let's use that data then to have an impact on how that athlete is training or how that athlete is feeling or give it to the coaches and the athletic trainers and the strength coaches. So we can all look at it together and say, wow, what are the things that we can do to keep this person performing at a high level and keep them injury free too? So my best, I tell this people all the time, my best advice, just start. If it's an Excel sheet, awesome. If it's a Word document, great. I would stray away from that piece of paper that just kind of floats around your desk because if you look at my desk right now, I, I don't know where that piece of paper would have gone. Um, so just try to find a method that works really, really well. Some other options out there are, you know, if you want to get really fancy, you can start to create just a, a Microsoft or a Google form, which is like a survey on your phone that says, hey, name was Jimmy, right? This person threw six, uh, 60 throws today. They said it was three out of 10 and start working with it that way. Um, if you're collecting RPEs, I really like just a, a clipboard at the end of practice going around person to person. Hey, tell me how you felt. The one thing you get with that is a little bit of bleed over effect. So, you know, if I'm sitting next to a person who thought that practice was really, really light, even if I thought that was really, really tough, um, you know, I might just go ahead and put my number just a little bit lower, but that's why I do like the, um, some of the Microsoft forms or Google forms stuff, because that survey will build into an Excel sheet in the background. All you have to do is download it and put it into play. You take it one step further, there's a lot of uh, really great uh, pieces of software uh, that are actually business intelligence softwares that you can start using as well. And you can take those and print them out and share them with people after creating really nice graphs and really great visualizations as well. So it's all about understanding, right? Just start, right? If you're gonna be like, oh, I'm gonna create the greatest dashboard and report ever, well, you're probably not gonna get there without a little bit of, um, humbling, right? You're going to be humbled quite a bit there. So just start, grab an Excel sheet, figure out the ways that work for you, figure out the ways that are going to work in your setting, and then work within the resources you have. If you don't necessarily understand what you're going to get out of a wearable, maybe that's not the first place to start, right? Maybe start a little bit simpler, a little bit easier, and then work your way up to say, hey, we have good data. What if we could get really finite data using a wearable? So I think that's great advice on collecting something, like you said, starting to get data. Start. And then yeah. um, obviously we have to get buy-in from coaches or parents or athletes in utilizing this information to guide what happens next um, so that we're not just collecting to collect. So 
you know, you've talked about some things with graphs and, and some of the information that you could provide um, to these individuals, but do you have any other advice or guidance on how this information can be used in developing recovery plans and communicating with people to get buy-in um, on the value of assessing training load and, and monitoring this? I think it's important to always think about, right, we're, we're measuring this training load, have an outcome to come along beside it, right? A, a range of motion, a strength, so that you can kind of see what you're doing here. If, you're, if we're expecting an increase in performance, let's say, right, we probably need some sort of performance-oriented outcome to come alongside this data. Um, if I'm really trying to right, sell this to players, parents, coaches, right, well, coaches and athletes usually respond to performance side. Now, performance and injury prevention those are not necessarily completely two separate silos, right? There's good overlap there. So as you're kind of saying a lot, putting these things alongside, or sorry, as you're collecting this workload data, right? Maybe you put it alongside a patient rated outcome, like a functional arm scale for throwers, right? A, a freely available patient rated outcome measure. So that as people are working through their training loads, right? You can understand, hey, this person's training really high level right now. Let's get a functional arm scale on them just to understand how they're feeling. Are they experiencing any pain, any soreness, anything that might be lingering under the surface that I can't necessarily see? And then, you know, you talk about selling it to coaches, parents, and athletes. A lot of this comes down to just education, right? Having a good, I said this before, but having a good theoretical understanding of why we're doing this, how we're doing this, and what it all means together Right? That's that's really impactful. When you go to parents and say, look, we're going to track some of this stuff. It's going to be a couple extra steps. If you could take two, three minutes a day after practice or after training to you know, encourage your son or daughter to track these things, oh, it would make a, a long-term benefit for all of us. We just want to keep people safe. We want to keep people performing at a high level. Make up um, What I've started to do in the past, actually, is just create like a one-page readout of, of what we're collecting, why we're collecting it, and what it means. Right, The, the how, what when, where, who, right? Of everything of just telling, giving us the, the facts, right? Hey, we're collecting workload. We just want to see what you're doing. We're also going to go ahead and um, track an outcome measure, like your strength and your range of motion to make sure that when you're training at a high level, you're also still in a healthy state, right? When that starts to back off or back down, then we need to step in and maybe make some changes or just tone back the training a little bit, right? It's better to take maybe one week off of training than to take 18 months off of training because you have a, a UCL surgery. Well, Brett, thank you so much for sharing with us today and kind of talking to us about training load. I think throughout this conversation, you've talked a lot about clinically applicable information and then also where we need to go in the future, um, identifying some holes and opportunities for um, all of us in kind of progressing the knowledge. Is there anything else that you want to mention as far as future research or what's needed in this area to really advance this information? Yeah, I think um, a, a lot of people are really starting to, you know, use the ACWR, the acute to chronic workload ratios. Um, but there have been, you know, recent literature emerging to just question some of those and understand. And one big thing that I would say is that we don't necessarily have a great theoretical understanding or underpinning of that, right? If we're modeling fatigue well, then let's measure fatigue, right? Let's say, look, if, if we think this is going to be seven days, these negative effects stay on, let's measure that, right? Let's put someone through a, a exercise and see how long some of these negative changes last. Um, I also think that there's a lot of application things that we can uh, start putting into place to understand maybe compliance of these wearables, making sure that the wearables are in the right spot, making sure that, you know, if, if that 
sensor moves just a little bit, does that influence a lot of the data? Preliminary evidence says probably not, but it's still something that we want to advance. And just to make sure, you know, uh, the absolute underpinnings of everything that we're doing has really, really sound theoretical logic and really, really strong methods, right? Like we want to make sure everything is very reliable. We want to make sure everything is very valid. We want to make sure that everything that we're doing is going to, you know, uh, give us the best information possible. So I think there's just some foundational things that we can really start doing to put it into practice. Uh, things like reliability, validity studies, maybe understanding our outcome measures and making sure that we can track outcomes for a longer period of time. And then one thing I uh, you know, selfishly would love to do as we kind of move into keep working with it is implement these functional arm scale for throwers over the course of a season as we're measuring more of the um, more of the outcome measure or more of the training load as well, right? If we measure training load, how are we feeling during these times of really high loading? How are we time feeling during these times of really low loading? Um, and I think there's a lot of opportunity there because that patient, you know, that functional arm scale for throwers is a patient rated outcome. And it's going to tell us, you know, a health, some level of health related quality of life of these people that we work with too. Well, Brett, I know I am, and I'm sure others are looking forward to seeing your research as you progress um, and trying to answer some of these questions and really with that focus on the application. So thank you again for coming on today and for the work that you're doing in this area. Yes, so happy to help. If there's anything that um, people would have more questions about, please feel free to reach out to me. Uh, my email is bpexathighpoint.edu. That's just my first initial and then my last name. Uh, if you have questions about this stuff, reach out. I love interacting with clinicians and I'd be happy to answer anything that I can. I hope you all found this podcast informative. That is it for today's The AT Tapes and we look forward to our episode next month. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please follow the Journal of Athletic Training on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at JAT underscore NATA on all three platforms. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us for next month's episode of the AT Tapes.